0: You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. My conversation for this episode is with Dr. Paul Thagard, a philosopher, cognitive scientist, and author. More formally, Dr. Thagard is the Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Waterloo and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Dr. Thagard's book, Bots and Beasts What Makes Machines, Animals, and People Smart, gives a common thread for our conversation, and we talk about empathy, creativity, and of course, collaboration. Please enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Dr. Thagard. How are you? Uh, Good morning. So you have a fairly, I would say, extensive background, and and written a lot of articles, written a lot of books, have a lot of research behind you. How do you how do you introduce yourself when people ask?
1: Well, I usually say that I'm both a philosopher and a cognitive scientist. So cognitive science is the interdisciplinary collaboration in trying to understand the mind. So it involves philosophy, but also psychology and neuroscience and computer modeling. Those are all fields in which I've, I work as well. I don't do as much in the other fields like linguistics and anthropology. But philosopher and cognitive scientist, those are the favorite labels i am <laughs> happy with.
0: So because we're talking about collaboration today, that kind of leads me to a question whether a philosopher and a cognitive scientist would see that The concept of collaboration differently? Or is there a way to distinguish how one perspective would see it from another?
1: Well, philosophers haven't paid much attention to collaboration because they don't collaborate much. Uh, The field has had the view that you should be able to pull ideas straight out of your own head, and that doesn't require collaboration. But cognitive science has been highly collaborative from the start. The idea that you need a bunch of different disciplines to understand the mind suggests that collaboration is essential. So a lot of the early collaborations involved people who were both psychologists and computer scientists, because the field got started way back in the 60s with the idea that you can think of the mind as a kind of computation, as analogous to the digital computer. There's problems with that analogy, but it was incredibly fruitful, especially in the early days, because people couldn't figure out how to scientifically describe how the mind works. There'd been a lot of metaphors for a long time, but they didn't work very well. You could think of the mind as like a telephone switchboard, but that's pretty crude. But when the computer came along in the 1940s and 50s, it provided a whole new vocabulary for talking about how the mind works. But that suggested that collaboration makes sense because psychologists have a lot of skills at doing experiments about how behavior works and how the mind works. And then computer scientists brought this new kind of technique of technology where you do computer simulations. So people started collaborating there. And quite early on, before the term cognitive science was framed, linguists came into the picture, sometimes anthropologists and, and philosophy too. So from the point of view of cognitive science, which is an interdisciplinary field, you could think of knowledge as being extremely collaborative. But philosophy was a little bit slow to catch on to the advantages of collaboration.
0: Your background, though, is a little bit different. Though you you've tended to collaborate a lot in your background. Is there are you kind of the outlier then in the philosophy world in terms of reaching out to collaborate?
1: Uh, yes, I am an outlier. Although collaboration is becoming more common in philosophy than it used to be, I had the big advantage early in my career of connecting with Richard Nisbet, who's a very eminent social psychologist, but he also had huge experience with collaboration. He basically wrote me in as a collaborator, and it was from working with him that I learned how to collaborate. So I just had this really early advantage in doing that. Philosophers are still sometimes skeptical. I was once introduced at a philosophy conference as being someone who'd had a lot of collaborators and therefore qualifying as being intellectually promiscuous, (laughs) promiscuous, <laughs> as, if, as if there was something wrong with that. Uh, but no, I've just gotten wonderful advantages from all the collaborators I've had. I, I think I counted once, I've had something like 30 different collaborations, uh, ranging from colleagues like Richard Nisbet, basically on an equal status, but also with lots of students. So when I moved to University of Waterloo in 1992, I set out quite intentionally to work with my students the way that psychologists work with their students, which isn't the kind of benign neglect that students usually get in the humanities, but rather, or benign if they're lucky, but but rather th- through collaboration, so that people could learn how to do things by working closely with someone who already knew how to do things.
0: Right? Does it always fall into that kind of? I'm thinking of the student, the professor-student relationship, and that it's it's more of that's in my mind at least. It jumps. I jump to this idea that it's one person teaching another and not as much of creating something new between the two of you. But is that, am I understanding that incorrectly? Well, the, w-
1: the way it often works in psychology, I imagine biology is the same, is that you start off with a, a teacher-apprentice relationship. But if it works well, and often it does, then you move into being co-equal. And then in the really exciting cases, you become secondary to your student who's now taken off and become a fully... Fully fledged uh, worker researcher on their own. Right. I'm proud of the fact that uh, by publications, I have eight articles where the first author was an undergraduate. <laughs> and so this is a case where even undergraduates, if they're really hardworking and smart, can take on a more and more leading role. So it's a matter of transition to eventually get people up to be able to do the research on their own.
0: In your sort of suite of collaborations, are those? Are those undergraduate collaborations some of the sort of the the ones that come to mind first, or is there another example that sort of just stands out as really notable?
1: Well, I've had the whole range, so I had uh, the ones that I mentioned where uh, Richard Nisbet uh, brought me into his research ideas, and then I had a sort of equal collaboration with another psychologist, Keith Holyoke, that went on for more than ten years in our work on analogy. And then the ones with my students where I brought them along. But there's been lots of other models too. There's also a kind of Oceans 11 model (laughs) that I've used occasionally where I've got wanted to do some project and I put together a team. So, probably the best example of that is a program, an article I put together, a project I put together on Is the Brain a Quantum Computer? And I've been really annoyed by a bunch of things that people had written about quantum computing, but I didn't really know enough. Physics to be able to do that, so I put together a team that involved a couple of computer scientists, a philosopher of physics, and another philosopher and me and and we wrote an article that got nicely published and cited so that 's the oceans eleven model as well
0: no uh, no getaway guys then
1: <laughs> no we haven't. we didn 't <laughs> have to escape from the people who attacked us no
0: oh well, I was hoping to you know dig into that if it was that was going to happen uh-huh. so I'm curious. You've got a new book coming out. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What's it called? It's called Bots and Beasts.
1: uh, And the subtitle is What Makes Machines, Animals, and People Smart? So it's about intelligence, but in a comparative way. So people have written a lot about intelligence comparing humans and computers and, and comparing humans and animals. This is the first systematic comparison of all three how they work together on some quite rigorous criteria that I used for figuring out what are the features of intelligence and what are the mechanisms of intelligence. And one of the things that emerged in writing is actually connected with collaboration. Oh, nice. (laughs) Because one of the things that makes people really smart isn't just our individual. The basic finding maybe isn't too surprising, is that people are really a whole lot smarter than other animals and the computers. Maybe it's more surprising for computers because artificial intelligence has really taken off in the last 10 years. There's just been amazing accomplishments. But, and lots of people, including fairly eminent people like uh, Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates and Elon Musk, are worried that computers are going to take over. So I did this comparison, quite detailed comparison. She says, no, they're just way, fall way short of humans. And that's also true of other animals, too. People have noticed over the last 10 or 20 years that animals are a lot smarter than we used to think they are, because not just uh, primates, but also birds and other animals can do quite amazing things. But still, if you look at it systematically, you discover that they're just far short of human capabilities.
0: So this kind of gives me an interesting line of, of questioning, but I wanted, before I I jumped to those. I was curious when does the book come out and when should people keep an eye open for it?
1: The official publication date is October 19th from MIT Press.
0: Okay. Cause I'm sure there'll be people who are listening who wanna wanna take a look and read all about the sort of the differences. When I think about collaboration, and I was kind of thinking sort of backwards looking, if you will, back to our roots, our to our animal roots. Are there in your work in the beast side of things? Do you see the roots of our collaborative nature coming from animals?
1: They're distant roots. And so you see a little bit of collaboration in animals. Obviously, wolves hunt in packs, dolphins also have group activities, but they seem to be really different because they don't involve nearly as much complex thought about what the collaborators are doing. Part of this comes from the work of a psychologist named Michael Tomasello, who's documented how even in two-year-old humans, there's I think, a natural tendency to collaborate. That is, they're very interested in what other kids are doing, what other adults are doing. And cooperation is just a fundamental part of being human, right from a very early age. But it's really different in animals. So you see things that look like collaboration, as I mentioned, the wolves or the dolphins, but it's mostly them instinctively doing things on their own. And from a distance, it looks like cooperation. But in fact, they're much more just doing their own thing, which happens to involve working toward joint ends. But humans, because we've got language and because we've got the ability to think about thinking, we can understand the ends of other people and use that as a guide to how we can work with them better. So I can think about what you're thinking so that we can get to a common end. And that's the kind of of thinking about thinking, it's called recursive thinking, recursive meaning that it goes back on itself, that humans are really good at and no other animal can do.
0: Is that when you're thinking of, or mentioning recursive thinking and just putting yourself in someone else's shoes, you're talking about empathy in that case? Or is empathy a different interpretation of that?
1: Empathy is one instance of recursive thinking. So you can have recursive thinking that's purely cognitive. When I So if I say, well, I think oh, that you yeah. think that I think, uh, we're having fun talking. That's not necessarily empathy. That's True. just a cognitive judgment I make. Empathy is more emotional. So, empathy requires you to put yourself in someone else's shoes and feel what they're feeling. So, you're getting an experience, a conscious experience, an emotional experience of what somebody else is going to. So, that's one kind of recursion, but there are other more purely cognitive kinds. For the sake of collaboration, you really want both because you want to be able to figure out just from general principles, what somebody else is thinking. But if you can actually feel what they're doing, then you can get a much better understanding of what their motivation is. Right. So in the collaborations I've had, it's been not just a matter of figuring out what other people are thinking that's important and having similar goals, but you also want to understand how people are feeling. What are they excited about? What what are they frustrated by? Because a lot of collaboration requires that kind of emotional management, managing your own emotions and also understanding the emotions of others. It all goes under the heading of emotional intelligence, which is something that people are way more sophisticated at than other animals. So there's a simple kind of, it's not really empathy, but it's an approximation to it you find in other animals, even rats or, or monkeys, which is a kind of emotional contagion. They can pick up on the emotional mm-hmm. state of someone else, but that's not putting themselves in the other other animals' shoes. Well, they don't have shoes, or, but they're they're not... They're not really feeling what the other is feeling in the same way, but they're just, well, they are, but it's not that they're understanding it by projecting themselves. So empathy in that kind is a kind of analogy. It turns out that animals can do a very simple kind of analogy, but not the full-blown analogy that human beings can do, but that involves thinking that your current emotional state is analogous to my emotional state at some previous time.
0: Right. What other sort of aspects come from the, the animal world? Are, are there any other aspects that come from the animal world that kind of give us the roots of our collaborative nature?
1: Well, I mentioned the ability to solve problems. So there's lots of animals that can do complex problem solving. Uh, and obviously, people work collaboratively in order to solve more complicated problems. And it's evidence has accumulated over the last decade that animals are way better at problem solving than anyone ever thought. There's a New Caledonian crow, for example, that can solve problems that require seven consecutive steps, each using a different tool. So people used to say animals can't use tools, but that got exploded when monkeys were found to use tools to get food and things like that. So, we know that non human animals can use tools. And now we know from the Caledonian crows, New Caledonian crows, that they can do complex sequential things as well. So, that's a big part of it because that's a big part of human problem solving. But crows do not enlist the help of other crows to do that. And most animals don't enlist the help of others. Probably the big exception to that might be bonobo chimps because they're relatively close to us and they're highly social animals and a lot of the collaboration they care about is actually by having, they carry out is by having sex with each other. <laughs> so, so so, so, they use that as a way of basically forming social bonds that enable them to cooperate better. But uh, aside, and, and chimpanzees, the, the usual kind, do collaborative hunting, although that, I think that might be closer to what wolves do, not involving as much thinking about what the other chimps are doing. But I think actually when it comes to collaboration, humans just developed a huge superpower that wasn't there before. And it came about because humans have always been social. The idea of humans living individually in the state of nature was just nonsense. All hunter-gatherers are highly social groups, highly cooperative groups. Uh, And sometime around probably 50 to 100,000 years ago, the human brain mutated to be able to have this really complicated kind of recursion that made it better to think about what other people are doing. So humans have always been cooperative as long as there's been these tribes of 50 to 100 people that worked together. But it got a lot better once language developed and you could start to think about how others are thinking about you and you're thinking about them. And that required the recursive mind that seems to be a relatively recent evolutionary development. So humans, on a on scale of collaboration, humans are really just a big jump over all other animals.
0: You know, it's funny because we talked prior to the podcast, you and I had spoken about how language can actually get in the way of collaboration usually between you know different groups of experts because everybody has their own particular language and it's also the thing that's enabling collaboration to occur so it's it's interesting to think about it from that it's an enabler and it gets in the way at the same time or can get in the way yeah i've seen both of that both because especially when you get people coming from different fields
1: initially the communication barriers are really large I found that in my first collaboration that involved two psychologists and a computer scientist. And we were all excited because we're all interested in the same problems about the nature of learning, about the nature of inductive inference. But it took us a whole year before we could actually talk to each other, before we get down to writing. I remember one session where we, it took us two weeks to figure out that we all meant something different by the word schema <laughs> because coming from different backgrounds but we figured it out by yeah. by talking so we used language to overcome the language barrier that was there
0: so maybe let's flip around and, and look sort of at the other angle that's for the technology side of the bots and beasts let's look at the bot side of things so what kind of what's the state of collaboration in the bot world It exists.
1: There certainly are machines that collaborate. I I guess in one loose sense, you could think of the internet with its 20 billion or so computers as being some kind of giant collaboration, but it's not a particularly intelligent one. But within the field of artificial intelligence, there's a branch called distributed artificial intelligence or multi-agent systems that for quite a few decades has been looking at ways in which computers can cooperate with each other. So the most impressive achievements in artificial intelligence right now, things like DeepMind from Google and uh, IBM Watson aren't collaborative, but there are other things that are clearly collaborative. The best example is driverless vehicles, because one of the things that's gonna that should make driverless vehicles better than regular cars, eventually, they aren't now, they're still a way behind what, what humans can do, but eventually, they should have the big advantage is that every car on the road can talk to each other. So, when you've got people driving down the freeway, they're all just driving their own car. But these cars already have the ability to communicate wirelessly with each other. And so if all the cars on the freeway are on the same communication wavelength, then they can coordinate. They can make sure they can warn each other about traffic jams and things like that. And so it should work much better. So the technology for that already exists. So driverless cars already have the capacity to make their decision based on what other cars are doing. So that's a really good example of cooperative problem solving that I think is collaboration. It's not nearly at the level of what humans can do because what are they doing? They're just driving, they're not doing science, they're not uh, writing books or anything like that. But still it is a kind of cooperation that exists.
0: So then is it the computers or the the machines themselves that are being cooperative or collaborative or are they simply following a set of rules like are they they're not independently cooperative is what I think I'm trying to get to here is who is the creative one was it the creator of the machine or the machine itself
1: well th- there's no creativity in this yet so that when you, actually you don't want driverless cars to be creative <laughs> <laughs> so i mean there are there are there are computers now that are creative there's ones that have produced way better music than most people can do, way better art than most people can do. There are even some mathematical proofs produced by computer there that were novel and, and valuable. There's even a few scientific results coming out of individual computers. So there is creativity, but not in the driverless cars. Right. Uh, so to address the more general question, people sometimes say, well, a computer is not creative because it's just programmed. But No, it's doing lots of things that are really surprising that it wasn't particularly programmed to do. Consider, for example, the Go playing programs that DeepMind did, the programs that play the game Go. They are really astonishing because they come up with moves that no human being has thought of. So that's surprising. It's valuable. And so I think there are lots of cases of computer creativity. I don't know of any cases of computer creativity involving collaboration because I don't think there's been much work done in that direction, but in principle, it's possible. And the programs may have been done by humans originally, but first of all, computers are already capable of lots of kind of learning, and so they're getting better at what they do. DeepMind became the world's best Go player just by playing itself. It wasn't trained by humans. It just played itself over and over again at incredible speed millions and millions of games until it figured out how to play Go better than humans. Same for chess. So there's already learning that's part of it. And so it's not just that they're programmed. They genuinely are creative. And eventually, I don't think this has happened yet, but eventually there will be teams of computers that are even more creative if they're able to collaborate like humans do. But that hasn't happened yet.
0: Do you think they'll they'll get to the
1: level that humans can reach? That's an entirely open question. First of all, it depends on whether the individual computers will catch up to humans. As I said, I argue in my book that they're way behind. There are a lot of things that they can't do. Their language is not nearly as good as humans. Their ability to interact with the world isn't nearly as good as humans. There are robots, but people. if you want to have an intelligent computer, it's got to have the ability to work with the world the way that people can do and the way that some robots can, but also do high-level kinds of reasoning the way that some computers already can. So there's a lot of putting the package together in order to get computers up to the level of human beings. So are they going to be as smart as I honestly don't know. I don't think it's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. Some people think it's going to happen within the next decade, but I'm not worried about that. But possibly in a hundred years, yeah, it could be there, but it's going to require a deeper understanding of intelligence that we have right now. But once you get that along the way, there should be the possibility for the computer to think oh, I can't figure this out on my own. I'm going to have to connect up with that computer over in Toronto and see if it can fill in the gaps in my knowledge and in my, in my thinking ability. And then together, that Toronto computer and I are going to be able to be smarter than either of us can be on our own. That's exactly what humans do all the time. They collaborate because they realize somebody knows stuff that I don't. And so I'll get together with them and we'll do stuff that goes beyond what we could do individually. Eventually, I think computers will get get to that point, but I've got no predictions about whether that's going to take decades or centuries.
0: It's an interesting thought this idea that you know humans can realize when when they've sort of hit their own wall in terms of understanding or or the need for something else and it sounds like you're not you don't see that in the in the artificial intelligence world where a computer will say, "No actually, I don't know enough to to continue they just stop am i correct there? And, and do you also see it in the animal world? Like, is this sort of falling into that recursive piece where we're thinking about what we're thinking about when we're thinking about it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's partly a question of recursion, but it's also a
1: question of the nature of goals. So computers can have goals, but they're basically just states that, yeah. are, that they're designed to reach. But human goals are really different because they're emotional. When you have a goal, it's not just some sort of abstract sentence. It's something you care about, and there's a philosopher once said, the problem with the computers, they just don't give a damn. <laughs> so they don't have anything driving them. So if you take science, for example, uh, people have questions. They just really want to be able to answer. So when, when Richard Nisbet hooked me into his induction project, he had a bunch of questions about how people do and should reason that he knew he didn't have the philosophical background to do. And so he got me involved with that. Similarly, I mentioned the quantum computing project where I knew I didn't know enough physics or particular kinds of computing to do it myself. So I had a goal that I wanted to accomplish, something I cared about, something that was frankly bugging me. (laughs) And so I was emotionally motivated. So animals have this kind of emotional motivation, but it doesn't go very far. Uh, they have very limited kinds of curiosity. It just basically goes around what's going on in their environment. I don't think they spend time worrying about the meaning of life or the origin of the universe or things like that. So they don't have these intellectual goals that require recursive language to be able to formulate. Computers can express that sort of thing because there's some pretty effective natural language processors. But but they're still they're not tied in with with their bodies the way emotions are, and so they don't have motivation. So they can get goals externally you can program a computer to say here prove this theorem or generate data concerning this they can do things like that but they don't really care yeah now there's going to be ways there are already work or ways of working around that because you can have external goals and every computer has tasks that it's given to do even uh, relatively dumb ones like my macintosh but so they've got goals but they're not goals that really drive them in
0: the same way right when we talked last you mentioned this idea of while we talked about the idea of of connecting sort of disparate points of knowledge like sort of the connecting of of sort of random what would seem like a random connection to come up with a new idea i think you called it emergence i'm hoping i got that correct Mm -hmm. and then i'm curious how that kind of concept shows up in the two different worlds or does it in which two different worlds so in the bots and beasts world uh huh. Okay. So, uh, are animals creative? Yeah.
1: Sometimes they do new and surprising things. It, it took, it took a, a very clever chimp to realize that uh, you could take a rock and crack open a nut. Uh, and that was, that was an invention. That's not something that chimpanzees do natively. So, what the chimp did was to take two different ideas nut and rock and crack, actually three different ideas, and put them together in the way that no chimp had done before. It turned out other chimps noticed. Other chimps noticed, and there was a kind of culture going on here and picked it up. So this happens in some groups of chimps, but not others. So you do find in chimps this kind of creativity and social learning. So I think all creativity is a matter of simply taking ideas or representations that haven't been previously connected and putting them together. And so you find a little bit of that in the animal world. But of course humans do that all the time. And we developed lots of tools especially over the last 10,000 years that enable us to do it better and better. Language uh was 50 to 70 years 1000 years ago as I mentioned, but when you can write things down When you get written languages, then you can see a lot more that you don't have to hold in current memory to can inspire you. And so you get that kind of creativity coming from written language. And then when you get groups of people, all of whom have language at a high level and written language, then you've got all the greater possibilities of taking ideas that were not previously connected and then put them together. And then you start to develop a whole cultural store of ideas about ideas about ideas and new combinations that have produced the astonishing amount of creativity that's happened in the last century.
0: So it sounds like our collaborative ability is an exponential curve. We're on the upswing in terms of what we're potentially able to do. Sure, because we've got more and more ideas, and then
1: the more ideas you had, the more ideas you can combine. And then, of course, we develop new technologies to make it
0: all the more feasible to combine ideas like, like computers. Yeah, so to sort of swing back to this idea of empathy for a second, a question crossed my mind you know, after we spoke earlier this week, I think. And I'm curious about your perspective on how empathy relates to ideas like justice and morality and, and things like that. And this has taken us away from the bots and beasts a little bit, but that's, I kind of wanted to go down a bit of a rabbit hole here and get your thoughts.
1: Well, it's important because a lot of ideas about morality are just based on pure reason. That you can take something like uh, Kant's idea that morality is just a matter of rights and duties. So you have to figure out what, who, what the rights are and what the duties are. Those are important ideas, but I don't think they're sufficient to capture all of that morality is. Another view of morality, again, these are non-religion, non-religious ideas about morality, is that what's right is what's greatest good for the greatest number. And that makes morality just a matter of calculation. That's called utilitarianism. But what both these views are missing, and those are the two major ideas in the history of philosophy, are um, the question of caring. That, in fact, a foundation for ethics is really caring about other people. Well, caring is a matter of sympathy. It's a matter of emotion. And empathy is an important part of that because it's often through empathy that you get to sympathy. So if you can feel what somebody else is feeling, then you can feel sad for them or happy for them and so sympathy there. And so I think this is my idea. Lots probably goes back to David Hume, but there's some 20th century philosophers who reached the same idea that that the basis for ethics isn't just reason about rights and duties or about the greatest good. It's a matter of really caring about other people. And I think that this is really important because that gets at motivation. So when you're caring about other people, then It's not some sort of abstract intellectual question. You actually are motivated to act in ways that's in their interest. So I think this is at least an equally important part of what ethics requires. It's relevant to collaboration as well, because if you're feeling what other people are feeling in your group, you're just not thinking abstractly, well, who's going to contribute what uh, for the expression? uh, What are they going to bring to the party? So you're not just Mm. collaborating with people because you're gonna get something out of this. The idea that people are inherently egoistic is is just wrong. I mean, there are few people who are egoistic, they're called psychopaths. (laughs) (laughs) But fortunately, they're only about 1% of the population. And my guess is that very few of them have successful collaborations, because if you got a bunch of people just out for themselves, they're just not gonna work well together. But if you got a bunch of people who are also ethical in the sense that they're altruistic, in the sense that they're caring about each other uh, and working with empathy as well as cognitive abilities, then you can do sometimes some magical things.
0: Right. You
1: well, know, it's not really magic. I use that as a metaphor.
0: <laughs> well, it feels like magic in the moment. Like uh, I'm sure you've had those collaborations where you've come out at the you know the back end of your project and went, I never would have expected something like that. To happen, uh, definitely, and that's really
1: exciting. It's not magic; it's emergence. What emergence yeah. is is coming up with a result in the whole that the particular parts couldn't do on their own because it depended on the interaction among the parts. So I had one paper on the neuroscience of uh, of action, and there were three of us in it: me, a psychologist, and a computer scientist. And I realized afterwards. Not just that no one of us could have done that paper, no two of us could have done that. <laughs> it really did require the mix of knowledge and skills that we had. It's not just a matter of what you know, it's also a matter of what your skills are and their skills involved in different fields. So when you combine the different skills with different knowledge, then you get these emergent properties where you're producing something that no individual or even no subset of the individuals could have done.
0: And that's really fun. So you've collaborated like you've mentioned you know, a lot, and I'm curious what what advice you would have to make it work. like what's the what's the the magic sauce that makes collaboration work? or what would you suggest people routinely do? I guess the flip side of that would be when it doesn't work, what's what's usually going wrong in your experience.
1: I'll start with the positive part first. Well, I can do them both simultaneously. Um, for, <laughs> to put it the most simply, you want people who are nice and smart. <laughs> if, they're, if, if, they're, if they're not nice, then it's not going to be fun to work with them. You can't trust them. You can't have the kind of common goals and the empathy that I was talking about. And <laughs> smart matters too. But not just the question of their individual intelligence, but also it really helps if they know things you don't. Huh. Right. So that's that's additional kind of smart. So the kind of advice, first of all, is find people who've got the same goals as you. You want to have a common goal, whether it's understanding, uh, whether it's, it's writing a novel. Some novels are collaborative, but more often nonfiction. Find people who've got common goals. And then f- find people who can bring things that you can't do on your own. There's no point in collaborating with somebody exactly like yourself because that's just a duplication of effort. But what you want to do is get people who've got knowledge and skills that are complementary to your own. And then third one is the behavioral thing, which is we've got, they've got to have the right kinds of of personality to be able to do it. I remember years ago, there was a music video made with a lot of the top singers of the day they had to sing together and somebody put a sign outside the recording room, check your ego at the door. (laughs) Cause there it really was important for them to be able to think we've got a common goal. We want to accomplish that. Uh, It's same thing with sports teams, sports teams where each is individually pursuing their own interests, usually aren't very successful. But if you've got members of the team who really want to work together to the word the common goal and actually cooperate and collaborate like the Canadian women's soccer game which just won the gold medal in soccer, then then you can really uh, produce more collectively than you can individually. That's the emergence aspect.
0: When we think about that check your ego at the door idea, does that apply to experts in a discipline? Like would it help to have more of a generalist involved?
1: Well, it's better if the experts are more broad than that. And So that, especially when you've got interdisciplinary collaboration, which is something I've done quite a lot of, then there's communication problems. And so it helps if the person you're working with knows a little bit about your field because they'll catch on to you a lot faster. So I was lucky that Nisbet had already worked with philosophers before. And I was pretty new to psychology then, but since then I've learned pretty well how to impersonate a psychologist so I can play that too. So I have no trouble at all collaborating with psychologists because I know a lot of what they know. One thing I did in order to be able to work better in cognitive science is I could pick up the psychology of my own by and large. Like not experimentation because I don't know how to do that, but the ideas is I didn't know enough about computation. So I did a master's degree in computer science, <laughs> which really got me up to speed so that I could speak that language too. So right. ideally... You want people to be somewhat multilingual. That doesn't mean everyone has to speak all the languages, but it really helps if the people who are involved in the collaboration know at least a little bit about the other fields.
0: So they can bridge one another with the language. Is there a role for randomness in this? I've had a colleague that suggested that in any collaboration, it's helpful to have somebody who's just not connected to anything and with nothing to lose or gain kind of plugged into that uh, I'm curious if you've. No, I If there are people who
1: think that randomness is important for creativity, because they notice the fact that creativity isn't predetermined. You can't start out and saying, "Oh, we're going to make a big breakthrough in COVID vaccines, uh, and it's going to happen through random activity." It's not random. It's focused, but it's not predetermined. So there's a there's a big difference between being random and knowing exactly where you're going. Um, right. So. What you get is a very very complex system where you've got lots of interacting forces and you end up with results that you didn't expect. But the fact that they're not expected doesn't mean that they're random, it's just that you have lots of interacting causal chains that produce things that are unexpected. So I think randomness is the wrong thing to bring here. Randomness is, is pretty rare in in nature, even probably maybe just down at the quantum level, there's randomness. But what happens often is you have these intersecting causal chains. And so you can try to design to put together the causal chains, meaning these ideas are relevant, those ideas are relevant, that person would be good to collaborate with, that person would be good to collaborate with. And so you put the ideas and the people together And then it's not random, but of course, you can't predict whether it's going to work or not. I mean, nobody knew whether the new COVID vaccines were going to work. It's actually wonderful that they've been so successful, but no one knew that. But there were a lot of really smart, trained people working really hard with very powerful goals. And so it, it did work. So I wouldn't call it random. It's even a little misleading to call it lucky, but it's somewhere that is in the sweet spot between... Predetermined and expectable and uh, and random. It's it's in between there. So I, I can't imagine throwing a random person into a pool. That's like people think they can get creativity by using a computer to randomly generate word things. Well, no, most of what you get there is just garbage. <laughs> Randomness <laughs> will get you garbage most of the time.
0: I guess it was the the context of the the idea came from an artist who had been involved with some. I think some forestry management stuff, he was being pulled into a number of things where they were finding that having an artist's perspective, and maybe it's just because of the creative nature of artists in general, that they were just able to bring different ideas, so different ideas to the table. And so my question was kind of pointed towards picking the people who are in the room. Do you...
1: I mean, artists have a lot of skills, but they're not just creative in the abstract. They're usually creative in particular areas. True. And so they're used to, used to producing valuable images by putting things in their images that haven't been done before. Or if they're musicians, they can produce different kinds of melodies or different kinds of instrument combinations. So artists of various sorts actually have a lot of skill that might turn out to be relevant to a particular project, especially if it involves, uh, say, images. Uh, so that's not that's not random. That could be thought of. This person might turn out to be highly useful because of the knowledge and the skills that the person has. Right.
0: Is there anything that I'm not asking that you'd like to speak to? I guess you did ask
1: before the question about when it goes wrong. And, and I, I didn't want to get the impression I've had wonderful collaborations, but I've also had collaborations that didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> Sometimes when I've uh, got students that were just a little bit slow, <laughs> yeah. that didn't, and that, that one's not going to work because uh, my goal with the collaborations wasn't just to use the students as beasts of burden. That's the way some people think of students. But even as undergraduates, I tried to get them doing things that were – as good as graduate students and try to get the graduate students to do things as good as full faculty members. But if some people, if they don't have the motivation, if they don't have the intelligence, then it's just not going to go. So sometimes it doesn't work. Or if you find somebody uh, really obnoxious, Mm. uh, if they just just annoy you, then that's not going to go. And so that's a way in which uh, collaboration can can really fail to work.
0: Can unravel. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I haven't had very many cases that I've had far more collaborative successes and failures, but of course it does happen. And you got to watch out cases where people put together interdisciplinary teams just for sake of doing it. I remember seeing that back in earlier days of cognitive science. There was a lot of grant money available and people would get together and form a team and they go after a grant. And then if they didn't get the grant, then they just drifted away because they didn't have the intrinsic motivation. So you gotta have the, the common motivation to solve a real problem, not just to get a grant or not just to impress an administrator, but to really have the intrinsic motivation to solve an important
0: problem. So I usually like to wrap up with sort of some a relatively short answer types of questions if you're game. sure. I'm curious sort of what's your what what's your process or your do you have a practice for unwinding like so when you you've called it a day at the office and and do you have something you go to that to take your mind away from all of the things you've been working on.
1: Yeah, I have a fairly favorite kind of day that I've been following for a long long time which is I write in the mornings, read in the afternoons, and late afternoons I like to exercise. Oh, nice. Pr- pretty much every day. So that's how I really wind down, whether it's going for an outdoor walk or hitting the exercise bike or even doing Tai Chi. So exercise is really the transition for me. And the evenings, I don't work because I'm tired. <laughs> and so, that, so that I watch sports or other kinds of television.
0: That's a nice routine. Do you have a book that you would normally give as a gift? Maybe it's one of your books or maybe it's it's another book, but is there a book that you have given either routinely as a gift or otherwise? I
1: haven't really done that. A lot of my books are kind of technical, and so they're not really giftable. But frankly, I think my new one, Bots and Beast, is the best candidate because it's on a serious subject, but it's not horribly technical. I've written it so that it can be read by people who don't have any background in psychology or philosophy or artificial intelligence. And the reviewers have found it really quite readable. And so that's something I could easily give to lots of people who aren't in my particular academic areas. So <laughs> I, I definitely think bots and beasts is the best candidate there.
0: Excellent. You know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I, this was a great discussion. I think we could have gone, you know, deeper into a number of these these areas. So I really appreciate the time. And thank you very much. Thank you. This has been really fun. Wasn't that a great conversation with Dr. Thagard? What I really appreciate about my conversation with him today is how he can pull from his diverse experience to really paint picture in our minds. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him. There's so much to take away from our discussion, but I, I keep coming back to the central role of empathy, or rather the recursive mind in collaboration. When we think about bots, beasts, and humans, there are several commonalities such as language and creativity, and complex problem solving now they do vary in capability amongst those three groups but they are commonalities across them all but recursive thinking that that ability to think outside ourselves whether it's in an emotional sense as in empathy and sympathy a cognitive sense you know in our understanding without these emotional drivers or even the benefit to the group is what really sets us apart thank you dr Thagard, for a great conversation please be sure to check out his book coming out in October called Bots and Beasts, What Makes Machines, Animals, and People Smart. It would be great if you thought of a few friends who might like this episode and pass it along to them. Tell them about the episode and about the show. If they're new to podcasting, show them how to follow us. Thank you for listening. Until next time, happy collaborating. you've been listening to cool collaborations please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in itunes in stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts upcoming training or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox if you like what you heard i'd be grateful for a rating in apple podcasts of course if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show that would be great too Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.